0: This is The Best Podcast. B-E-S-T stands for business, entrepreneurship, startups, and technology. I'm your host, Adam Sokolich, and each week we talk live on social media platforms like Twitter Spaces so that you can stay up to date with the latest news and stories, learn the greatest tools and tactics, and gain some of the best opportunities to connect with new people. Special guests include top founders, CEOs, and experts. Plus, the audience is always full of fascinating people. Even Elon Musk recently tuned in. All of our conversations are educating, entertaining, and engaging with the mission to help you succeed. So follow us on all your favorite social media platforms, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and of course, tune in live to the best podcast. Let's talk soon.
1: Chris Hadfield, how are you today?
2: I'm doing great, thank you. Can you hear me okay?
1: loud and clear. This is fantastic, Chris. I'm so excited to talk with you today. And of course, everyone here in the room joining, we'll give it just a minute to populate a little bit more. So Chris, kind of before we get started, just a little bit of chit chat. How are you and, and where are you? Are you here on earth, hopefully?
2: Uh, uh, yeah, I think everybody on the call is probably on earth. Um And uh, is this Adam that I'm talking to?
1: Yes, yes, I should have introduced myself. My name is Adam Sokolich. I'm in this account the best of live audio, and I host some of the tremendous people around the world, the thinkers, the the doers as well. Um, And we'll get going in just a moment. But yes, back to you. Where are you? How are you?
2: I'm doing fine. I'm I'm in Canada. I'm in, in fact, um, I'm currently very heavily involved in writing the next book in the series, So I'm actually sort of at a retreat right now um, uh, on the edge of a ski hill, uh, and I wake up early in the morning and and write uh, until I run out of ideas, and then I try and get some exercise in the afternoon skiing, and otherwise I I, uh, then tie in and do the rest of the businesses I'm involved in. But it's quite an interesting writer's existence, and uh, for the folks that know specifically, I'm in the Blue Mountain area near Collingwood.
1: Amazing. Well, I'm a fellow skier as well, and I'm sure we could talk about that all day, but I don't want to bore these folks in the audience. We have so much more exciting things to talk about. So, Chris, I'm going to give an introduction, but are you ready to go?
2: I am absolutely ready to go. Yes, please.
1: Excellent, excellent. Well, welcome, everybody. My name is Adam Sokolich, also known as the Best of Live Audio, and I am super excited to talk with Chris Hadfield today. Now, Chris is one of the most seasoned and accomplished astronauts in the world. He's a multiple New York Times bestselling author. His books have sold millions of copies worldwide. He's a top test pilot from the U.S. Air Force, the U.S. Navy, and of course, in the Cold War fighting uh, fighter pilot as well. You know, he's a veteran of three space flights. He's crewed the U.S. space shuttle twice. He's piloted the Russian Suez, and uh, he's been so many more great things. I could go on and on. You've even been a tremendous TED speaker as well. Chris, this list is incredible. I'm sure many, many, many people have told you that before, but this is very, very exciting. And and we're going to talk about your experiences, right? We're going to talk about your book that just launched a couple months ago, and we're going to also going to open it up for some Q&A at the end for the audience. So I hope that they save their, their questions as well. Does that sound good?
2: Oh yeah, I'm really looking forward to everybody's Q&A, and a and i a pleasure to be speaking with you, Adam. And The Apollo Murders, uh, I was just speaking to my, uh, my publishing folks. It's be- currently going into 13 different languages and counting, so it's being read by people all around the world. It's really exciting for me.
1: Good. Well, we're going to dive into that book, The Apollo Murders. It's a, it's a thrilling book. I'm excited to talk with you about that. And, you know, actually, that kind of transitions. I just gave you all the credit of all the great things that, that you've earned throughout your career. When I look at you and I've been studying you and listening to you for a while, I also see a tremendous storyteller. And that goes everything from the books that you write to the interviews that you do even your tweets, are, there are micro stories, right? Everything that you're doing is a storytelling. And where I'd like to begin today is, I've, I know that since you were a boy, you were nine years old, you've wanted to become an astronaut. And I've heard that story many times. I'd love to hear, who were the people that you looked up to? Who were those heroes that inspired you on that path forward?
2: Adam, I've heard the quote that life is a grand adventure or nothing and And I've always i even subconsciously, before I could even think about that, I've always thought of it that way. Life is a grand adventure and and you're kind of the uh the the center of your particular story so so you know, don't wait for someone else to live your life, right try and try and make decisions and do things with your own life. That, that fit into your own particular version of a grand adventure whenever you can. And for me, that grand adventure really began, as you mentioned, like as a little kid. Um, I was growing up on a farm in southern Ontario. You know, my nearest neighbor was was a significant, over to Bobby Peter's place, was a significant bike ride away. So it was a fairly isolated environment, but Star Trek came on television mm-hmm. and Once a week, with the with the bunny ear antennas, we could, if we adjusted them just right, we only had black and white, but we could watch Captain James Kirk and and Spock and McCoy and and Uhura as they went adventuring around the universe, and talk about an inspiring, grand adventure. It just, I thought, wow, what a cool, fun thing. And I was reading science fiction, and so the the writings of uh, Jules Verne and uh, Arthur Clarke and and so many of those authors, they, they also really inspired me. But uh, fantasy is okay, but that's not where real life is. You know, it's sort of split from your real life. And if you can never link the two, then it's hard to truly have that grand adventure. Your own life sort of, I think, becomes pale in comparison. And I was just so lucky that At the same time that I was that boy, you know, going to the movie theater to see 2001, A Space Odyssey, at that same time, real people, normal people were actually um, flying in space. This thing that should have been just a a television fantasy was actually happening in the world. And, And so that was immensely motivating for me. And those people were my my heroes. They were my role models, literally. They were the people that I modeled myself after. I tried to do the things that they had done, gain the skills that they had, so that maybe someday uh, I could maybe have some of that grand adventure that I was dreaming about as part of my own life. So, yeah, I I think stories are important, especially the stories that you tell yourself and, and how you try and make them come true.
1: Mm-hmm. And where I'd love to go with this is that uh, I've been a huge fan and I've even been an organizer of TED events before. And so for folks in the audience, if you don't know what TED is, it's uh, one of the largest and best global conferences around, but people give tremendous talks. And Chris, you're one of them. In the past six to eight months, I've, I've been fortunate enough to speak with 10 of the top TED speakers, everyone from Amy Cuddy, Tim Urban. I mean, you know, tens and dozens of millions of views, of course, and now you as well. I'd love to dive into that topic just a little bit before we get into the book as well, so it still fits within this theme of storytelling. When you gave your TED Talk, I know how much you prepare for everything that you do, especially with the space flights. With TED, what was that experience like? What did you do to prepare as we think about public speaking and and, uh, having an audience much like we have here in this room right now?
2: Sure. Well, what's TED? It's a technology, engineering, and design. I think that's that was sort of the basic idea. And how do you take things that might inherently be boring, like technology, engineering, and design, and and get people to understand them at sort of a visceral way, to really get it, you know, to get the excitement of, of what those three things can mean. So, but but in truth, I'd never heard of TED. You know, I like a lot of people. I didn't know what it was. It was a guy's name. I didn't know what Ted was, and um, but they contacted me and said, "Hey, we'd like you to come do a TED talk." And I was going, "Fine." What's a TED talk? And and they explained it to me, and I realized, "Oh, well, this is this is a, a a good sort of a lot of audience stage. So if I say something here, a lot of people can hear it. So that sounds like it might be worthwhile." And They were moving to Vancouver. They used to be down in California, but they were moving to Vancouver. So here was also a chance for a Canadian kid like myself to actually speak on a Canadian stage uh, to a global audience. So I thought, okay, this sounds worthwhile. What do I need to do? And they said, uh, I don't know. We want you to talk about something worthwhile. Go. (laughs) You have 18 18 minutes. So, So then what do you do? I've got 18 minutes to talk about whatever I like. To kind of this amorphous, uh, you know, there's going to be I don't know, five hundred, a thousand people in the room, but then it's going to be seen online later a lot, and I think there's been like ten million people have seen it or something. So you want to try and figure it out. But fortunately, when I was in eighth grade, uh, going to school in in uh, where was I going to school in eighth grade in Oakville, Ontario, um, they had a public speaking program you know, those teachers after hours, uh, you know, of their own volition, they organized this thing because they recognized that being able to express yourself in public is a really good skill to try and give to your students and to your young ones. And so, uh, I ended up in this public speaking program as an eighth grader, and uh, and you know writing speeches and learning how to talk and how do you you know how do you tell a story in public and all those things, and and I had some success as an eighth grader speaking in public, so that helped. And then as an astronaut, of course, the Canadian Space Agency had sent me. To, to every school in Canada and, and the, you know, every chamber of commerce and Rotary Club and business. And then I'd spoken right through to, you know, the United Nations and, you know, big organizations and parliament and such. So, so I had lots of chances to speak in public, but now 18 minutes, what are you going to do? And so I talked with my wife and some friends and said, what, what what's worth talking about? And we tried to choose something that, it's sort of common to everybody and that is being afraid and and it's okay to be afraid that's normal but what you do with your fear is going to define your life and as someone who has done wildly dangerous things in pursuit of my own uh values um you know to be a, a fighter pilot in combat or, or, or at least during the Cold War, you know, face to face with Soviet bombers off the coast of Canada, or as a test pilot, which is a very dangerous profession, or as an astronaut, where flying a rocket ship is wickedly dangerous. I had, I had confronted danger, and I thought maybe some of those ideas would be useful to other people. How can I boil them down to eighteen minutes and tell it in a compelling way? And they also said, "Oh, and play some guitar at the end, if you would, please. We'd mm-hmm. like that." So I'm like okay fine so I put together a talk but I didn't just want to talk about space stuff so I tried to frame the story in a way that um, that would not only tell some fun space stories but would also be easily memorable and and directly applicable so I talked about spiders uh, and, and rocket ships because because both of those can be scary to some people and and then what you can do to recognize that there's a difference, between danger and fear they're not the same thing we tend to say oh that must be scary but i learned a long time ago that things aren't scary just sometimes people are scared and the greatest antidote for, for fear is competence and knowing what you're doing. And so I built my talk around that. And they liked it, you know, at, at TED, uh, if you if they like you, they stand up and give you a standing ovation. So there's this nervous moment, right? When you say your final word, or in my case, struck my final chord, and you're going, I hope they liked what I just said. And everybody stood up and, and, you know, clapped and cheered. I was like, all right, good. They liked my talk. That was nice. Um, But yeah, to me, it was just an extension of my little eighth grade self, um, trying to let people know what was going on inside my head and hopefully not just be entertained, but maybe uh, learn something or or think about things
3: differently.
1: Yeah. And you know, Chris, I've been a TED and TEDx speaker coach for a while as as a, consultant on the side. But at the same time, I've seen so many talks. And when I study your talk, you nailed every aspect of the tips that I would have provided. Right. And so I think that just comes back to the natural preparation that you do. Um, But I do have a a question, actually, and that kind of leads to the aspect of preparation, because I do want folks to go check out your TED talk. We won't spoil all the secrets there. But during it, you do talk about facing your fears. And you do talk about managing risk and the scenario that, that you spoke about in space as well. So before we jump into the book, and we'll go into more of those stories and more of those technical aspects in just a bit, I would love to ask you, as you are working with NASA and they train you through all of these scenarios, I know you've mentioned every single scenario that, that they prepare you for and you practice many, many times. Tell us, how do you ge- how do they generally train you in the skill of problem solving? What are the, the techniques to staying calm? Because I know that they try to plan you for everything, but where's what are the trends amongst them? What are the things that stand out so that folks in the audience, as they think about problem solving, they can then apply that to their life at any moment?
2: Sure. I, I do want to dis, disabuse you slightly. You don't like show up at astronaut school and they teach you some stuff and then you fly in space. Right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. I understand. Throughout like, your career, how about that?
2: it's not like a course that you take and you know when I was hired as an astronaut uh you know I was already uh you know the top test pilot in the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. Navy and a Cold War veteran and you know and a couple engineering degrees and you know so Mm -hmm. so you show up there with already a reasonable life history um that has dealt with danger and dealt with risk and fear Mm -hmm. but of course, you're now about to try and go do something that is even more dangerous and has higher risk than that. And as mentioned in my TED Talk, once we completed the space shuttle program, we did all 135 flights, including the two crashes that killed everybody. Then you can go back and and you understand just how dangerous it was, because you can do, you know, all of the statistical analysis and math. So how is it that nasa or the other space agencies canadian space agency all of them how do they get you ready to do that and i think it boils down to a few things adam number one is why are you taking a risk don't like no astronauts are thrill seekers you know despite the the, the silliness you see in movies we are not you know yeehaw adrenaline junkies we're the opposite we don't take stupid risks we are only going to take a risk if it serves a purpose that is worth taking a risk for. So it's really important whether you're going to launch on a rocket ship or do a spacewalk or whatever it is you want to do. Why am I taking this risk? Am I doing this uh, on purpose? You know, what, what is the end game? So then once you know why you're taking the risk, then it changes your whole role. It's not like you're going to somehow survive it or you're going to like a bungee jump or something where you're just going to have to hold your breath and close your eyes and go. It's the opposite. Your job is to use every second between now and the moment that that event occurs to beat the odds, to get good at it, to gain the skills, to understand every single thing there is to know about it. Because if you don't want to be afraid, then you have to know what you're doing. It's like you know, it's, it's like anything. It's like uh, riding a bicycle as a kid. You know, bicycles fall over and you can get hurt. And you can bang your head and all those other things. But someone teaches you and you learn how and you gain the skills. And there's a wonderful day when suddenly you're pedaling and you're clumsy, but you're steering and you're away. And now you're a bike rider. But the danger didn't change at all. Just your skill level changed. And now you can safely experience the exhilaration of riding a bike. And and it's the same thing. Gain all of the skills. So number one, define the risk and why you want to take it. Number two, learn everything there is about it and change who you are to be able to do it. And then third, when it's time to actually face that risk and do the thing, um, be the, the focused human being, the best one, the most prepared, the most attentive, You know, the most in the moment, zen uh, executor of this activity as anybody could possibly be. And, and I just remember after a little while in space, that wonderful feeling of momentum building. Every single one of those seemingly insurmountable obstacles was now behind me. And we were on to the next thing and the next thing. And it felt like body surfing, catching a huge wave where you were, you're just like, hey, I'm, I'm riding this thing. It's happening as a result of all of my visualization and preparation and self-change. And when you get into that sweet spot, it's a pretty wonderful feeling, especially if you're weightless.
1: woo. Uh, I, I feel the emotions coming through as well. I do want to transition to the next topic. It's a beautiful transition, but this is live audio. And I have a question. You talk about, you know, for instance, leaving the uh, the spaceship, the space station for a moment. and And let's go back quickly to... The first time you ever exited and went into space, can you briefly, you know, within a minute or two, just walk us through either what you were thinking or what you were feeling in that exact moment of your first exit into, into space?
2: Sure. Spacewalking is the coolest thing that uh, an astronaut gets to do. And in my life, I've done lots of stuff. I think it's the coolest thing I've ever gotten to do. And I've done some cool things. You know, I lived at the bottom of the ocean, and I I had a sleepover at Windsor Castle with the Queen and Prince Philip. And I was in the delivery room when my wife was there giving birth to all three of our kids. But to be outside on a spacewalk, it's a really cool thing. Um, So it takes an enormous amount of preparation. To understand everything about the suit and how to choreograph it and invent the spacewalk and then practice it and drill into everything that might go wrong, but it still comes down to the moment when you have spent four hours getting your spacesuit built around your body like a transformer and then pre-breathing pure oxygen for hours to get the nitrogen out of your blood so you don't get the bends, and then depressurizing the airlock around you and your and your walking mates so that it goes quieter and quieter and quieter until it's dead silent around you. And then the yeah, clock hits zero, you turn the big uh, handle on the hatch, you push the hatch out of the way, you push the little thermal pl- fi- fabric cover out of the way, you grab on with both hands and you pull yourself out into the universe like like, a, like an infant giving birth to itself you know deliberately and the transition i think is is as significant as it is for a newborn infant where where you were in this small confined dark comforting familiar place and now suddenly you are out in a in a in a stupefyingly different place with the world on one side silently gigantic turning the eternity of space in three dimensions all around you a blackness with a profundity you can barely absorb and you are somehow right there in the middle. Your eyes are soaking up all of that, and it, it's just—it stops all thought. It is just so profoundly beautiful and different. And that's just the first minute. You know, you got to be outside for six mm-hmm. or seven to do all those things. It's—it is uh, a fabulous, dangerous, amazing. Um, very uh, informative new human experience.
1: See, folks, I mean, I'm getting chills just listening to you, but that is storytelling at its finest right there. The words, the descriptions, you made us feel there. And so now let's transition to that next topic. It's, it's that next adventure for you uh, as you retire from becoming an astronaut and you move into wanting to write a novel. And you've written many of them. The latest one is the Apollo murder, the Apollo murders, excuse me. And this is a thrilling story, folks. You know, it's something that I highly recommend you go check out. Uh, You know, obviously on Amazon, there's a thousand reviews. It's almost five stars, of course. I've started listening to it. And for folks in the audience, I actually love it so much. I'm going to give away some audio copies of it from Amazon. So if you're an Audible fan, check it out. Send me a a direct message afterwards or right now, and uh, I'll get a, a few of you guys some of those copies. I think you'll absolutely love it. And we're going to dive into this story, Chris, for about, let's see, it's uh, 20 minutes after. So we'll talk about for the next 15, 20 minutes, and then we're going to open up for Q&A. And-
2: hey, let me interrupt, though. That audible version is read by a really superb uh, actor and narrator, Ray Porter. And he and I worked together really closely for him to do that version of the book. And he just did a superb job. So uh, mm-hmm. I think uh, reading the book's one thing, but listening to Ray Porter read you the book, that's really worth worth doing. He did a great job.
1: Completely agree. And, you know, obviously for folks in the room, you might like audio, right? You're in this room, so you'll probably like Audible, uh, the books itself. And and, and of course, I agree with you, Chris, on that point. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about this for about the next 15 minutes. And we'll open it up for Q&A for anyone in the audience. So folks, get your questions ready for Chris. And what I'd like to do here, Chris, is kind of walk through the story a little bit. Maybe some of the key points, not giving away anything because we want people to go check it out. At the same time, there's the story aspect. There's the understanding of how you wrote it. And then there's the technical experiences that you went through that I'm sure you put into the book itself that we could dive into any of those moments as well. Does that sound good? Yeah, absolutely. Good, good, good. So tell us, Chris, what inspired you to write this book? What was that moment like when you were like, I want to write a book. And here are the initial ideas that you had. Um, when was it? Where were you? And just kind of how did it get how do you get lifted off the ground?
2: Well, part of it, Adam, is I loved reading thriller fiction uh, growing up. I, I just if I'm gonna just read an escape, I'm reading Stella Remington series right now, and I have read lots and I read all of the the sort of the classics, you know, the the Bourne series and Tom Clancy and uh, and the eye of the needle and you know, a bunch of those. And I just find I find them just really gripping, escapist kind of stories. So I'd always kind of in the back of my mind going, man, how do people write those? Wouldn't that be cool if you could write a book like that where people just can't help but keep turning the pages? So that was sort of my whole life. That was in the back of my head. And then when I came back from my third space flight, it's like I have just had an experience that almost no human being in history has ever done. What do you do with this experience now? Do I just keep it to myself do I just you know tell my family what do I do? And it would seem like that would just squander it if, if you didn't try and share it somehow. And and so I you know I wrote, I wrote a, a book on ideas and a book of pictures. I did a children's book. I did a, a National Geographic series. I did a BBC series. I've I did a whole album of music. I've done all sorts of stuff to try and share the ideas. But about four years ago, um, uh, a publisher came to me and said, "Chris, we think you." You could write a fiction book, a thriller, and uh, and we have a title. We think you should call it The Apollo Murders. What do you think? And I was like, man, I, I don't know. I, that sounds cool. I'm glad you have confidence in me, but I I don't know how to write fiction, but I like the title because that's, that's really helpful. The Apollo Murders. So it's got to be during the Apollo era, so it's 1968 to 1973, and you have to kill at least two people because there's an S on the <laughs> word murder. So, okay. So cool! What boy? That's that gets my juices flowing a little bit, um, but then it, it just sort of uh, sat for a couple of years, and you know, back and forth, and yeah, and then finally, everybody realized, you know, give the astronaut a deadline, or he's not going to do anything. Give him a launch date. So they gave me a deadline, and uh, and I, I uh, about uh, three years ago now, I wrote the first chapter, which which the first piece of the book, which ended up being the the prologue, the the first. Chapter in the book, and and then about three months went by, and then I wrote this little James Michener sort of chapter on how the how the moon was formed, and I'm going, geez, uh, I got to buckle down, and so starting May of last year of 2020, uh, 20, I actually buckled down and started writing, and uh, and then I wrote every day. I'd get up early, exercise, and then write from about you know eight eight thirty in the morning until lunchtime, and I tr- I set myself the goal writing about a thousand words a day and what you know i'd read stephen king's book on writing because that was kind of a good instruction manual on how he writes and and then i reread you know uh the Ipcrest File and, uh, and Day of the Jackal and, you know, all of those really good ones. Um, and, and, you know, the damn Dick Francis series and the, uh, the John D. McDonald series. And I, I just I studied them differently. Like, how do those guys how do they write these things? I wish I'd found Stella Remington because, you know, she's brilliant. And the way that she writes is, is uh, I'm reading her now as I'm writing the next book in the series. But and then I just started writing and I wrote every day for uh, eight months. Uh, and try to get 1,000 words a day. And if you do the math, I mean, I miss some days, but I ended up writing about 195,000 words, which is a, a tome of a book. But then I went through over a few weeks, this was last January, a year ago, and, and edited it down to about 170,000 words or so, and then I, I worked with a professional editor, just like uh, Stephen King and everybody does, who comes in and says, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, let's clean this part out. and Let's move this part over here. And they don't write for you, but they, they tell you where you've got a little too much in love with yourself. And we trimmed it down to 135,000 words. And, um, and that's the final product. And so a delightful, interesting learning process of gaining another skill, you know, beyond the other things I've learned to do during my life, but but it still comes down to that nervous day when when other people are going to start reading your book and you're you know you're like a, an expectant parent or or whatever and you don't know how it's going to be received, but to have. James Cameron loved it, and Frederick Forsyth, the guy who wrote *The Day of the Jackal*, like he loved the book. And James Patterson—I mean, he's done a master class on fiction writing. He said it was one of the two books that he read last year. You know, so it's like, holy cow! You know, th- that's wonderful uh, uh, praise for this book. So, so it gave me confidence that that um, you know, this is maybe something I can I can do. And, and so that's why I'm busy now writing writing the next in the series. Uh, After the Apollo murders an interesting process to be part of
1: absolutely and so one thing and, and I want to start asking more about the story in just one second but I heard you because I've been I've been preparing for this conversation. Right, Chris. And it wasn't until very, very recently that I heard you mention uh, the Stephen King aspect. Right. You you read his book. You were learning from him. And of course, I imagine most people in this room know who Stephen King was. I even tried to reach out to his team to say, hey, can you join this conversation or uh-huh. an, or an upcoming one? Right. So maybe he'll come on in the future. Wouldn't that be exciting? Um what was what was one thing? Because I'm sure there's many, many things that you can learn from someone like Stephen King. Was there one thing vividly as you think about harnessing your stories and turning that into something exciting for folks that you learned from Stephen King? If so, what was that one thing?
2: Yeah, it's that um, in it, in that book, he included uh, some of his, uh, a section, like several pages of unedited writing, just his raw writing, you know, where he sat down, had an idea and started blurting out a story. And it, it was just the way that he wrote it, and it was terrible. Like it, it was rough, and it needed uh, the word choices didn't weren't good, and and there was there were little logic mistakes and stuff, and that was so good to read because I realized it doesn't have to be perfect on your first time through. In fact, it won't be, and you can't make it that way. You've got to get your ideas down onto the paper, onto the screen. You know, you've got to you've got to just write for a while and then later on you can go back and, and clean it up and fix it and, or you know get an editor to come in and make sure all the punctuation and, and the logic trains hold hold water and all that but don't don't torture yourself trying to make every word precious and perfect and and by reading stephen king's book it was not only did he give me a lot you know just great ideas on how do you do it and how do you regulate your life and what you know just that but but also that uh, your first draft it's just that. It's your first draft, and and you're going to have to work on that in order to turn it into the finished product you're going to have other people see. And so that that really gave me a lot of permission uh, to start writing and, and get going and, and work out uh, the skills as I went. So I'm really thankful to Stephen for that.
1: Wonderful, wonderful. So now let's dive into this more, and this is a fantastic story where, of course, it is fictional, right? There's the moments that you've created. However, you're bringing in your tremendous real life experience. And so I'd love to tackle those two topics, right? And so for folks in the audience, highly suggest you check out this book. You can Google it right now. It's called The Apollo Murders, Uh, 1973, top secret mission to the moon, three astronauts, a tiny spaceship, quarter million miles away from home, quarter million miles away from help. I'm not going to tell all the secrets that are going on, all the, all the thrilling stories that are going on. Tell us one chapter that you really, really enjoy writing and just the, 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 the stories within it out of this whole book, what's one that really resonates with you and that you love to share with the audience?
2: Um, well, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a pro I like the whole book. Of course. <laughs> of course.
0: It. Of course.
2: Proud author. But, um, I discovered so many things in the process of writing it because it is historical fiction, you know, alternative history fiction. A lot of it has to be 100% ironclad. These are things that actually happened. And over half the characters in the book are real people. And and probably, I don't know how you... Like 90% of the book is actual events, things that really happen. And my plot just twists in amongst all those. So my favorite maybe scene is there was a Soviet spy space station at the time, a real one, and they called it Diamond, which in Russian, one of the words for Diamond is Almaz. So they called it Almaz. And um, Almaz was a secret spy telescope with a huge telescope inside. And cosmonauts were were going to be operating that telescope of Almaz. And in fact, they did. And what most people don't know is uh, Almaz had a machine gun strapped to the outside of it. No way. Early 70s really fired that machine gun in space to make sure it all worked. It was it was one of those machine guns from the tail gunner of one of the big Soviet bombers, like the ones I used to intercept off the coast of North America. So anyway, so that's all real. And and I had been to a Russian space station. I helped build the Russian space station Mir on my first space flight. So I have an intimate understanding of, of Soviet and Russian space technology and space stations. And I'd been NASA's director of operations in Russia. I lived in Russia for years, learned to speak the language. I was the pilot of a Russian rocket ship, so so to be able to write about uh, you know launching this Apollo ship, which, which and I, I flew on the space shuttle twice as flight crew, so so I'm very familiar with that, and then flying it up uh, on the way to the moon to go past this Soviet space station. It was such a wonderful. Uh, squeezing in of possibility amongst the reality of, of all of the limitations of orbital mechanics and and horsepower and uh, and proximity operations and rendezvous and and day and night and and spacewalking operations and everything, it, it really called. I felt like some enormous juggler with all of these balls in the air and trying to make it all work and fit and still tell a. A, a, uh, a gripping you know heart pounding paced story of events. And, and so that was really fun to, to build to that early climax in the book because then it just sets the stage you know for what happens next and the rest of the story mm-hmm. as they go on to the moon on Apollo 18. So yeah, I, I, that was a lot of fun and and as a writer, uh, you discover stuff all the time obviously you're researching things all the time and making sure you get your facts as right as you possibly can but you also the characters that you've invented you you discover stuff about them like what would this person do next oh that's what that type of person would do next oh well that lead hey that leads to this opportunity and and it's sort of you you are part creator but you're very much part uh, spectator as the story sort of develops itself. And I, that was really interesting to discover and learn as, as I was writing uh, that part of The Apollo Murders.
1: Ooh, well, thank you. You are helping with this transition. You, this is fantastic because while we talked about some of the real stuff that you just mentioned, which is wild, I had no idea that a, a machine gun would have been in space with the Russian uh, station and, of course, things like that. But you start to mention the creative process as well. And so, you know, there's two aspects that I'm seeing in the story. From a micro or from a macro level and a micro. And it's the battles Like from a macro. It's during the Cold War with U.S. and Russia. Micro, there's battles between some of the astronauts. Right. And I can tell, you know, maybe that happens in space. I don't know. You tell us. But how did you come up with that creative story of these battles amongst um, amongst the astronauts? And of course, don't give away too much, but it's thrilling the things that go on between these guys. Um, Tell us more about that.
2: I think what most, uh, space movies and a lot of space books get wrong is, um, people wouldn't behave like that. You know, uh, so many of the space movies, I'm just, I'm like scowling and slapping myself in the forehead. Like nobody behaves like that. Why, why would that doesn't, it loses all credibility those aren't real people and people, you know, like the the sort of the meme of the of the the Russian baddie, you know the Soviet bad guy, like a James Bond villain, and you uh, know just the the shallowness and the uh, inaccuracy of the portrayal of characters I find that disappointing when when an author or a movie maker isn't able to rise beyond that, and I really wanted to make because of my own experience in the areas. I wanted every single character to be true to their own decisions and their own actions. Why would they do this? And they wouldn't just do it because I've cast them in that role. You know, that's, that's not why anybody's going to do anything. They're going to do it because it's right to them. It makes sense to them. It aligns with their worldview. It's what they feel compelled to do. It's what they feel they have to do. And so that leads to all of the normal conflicts in the world. You know that that's that's what leads to conflict interpersonal and and amongst a crew and obviously uh, you know between cultures and languages it becomes even even more prevalent and so to have the Soviet space program and the NASA American space program and the Cold War you know in sort of in parallel underpinning all of that you know it, it has those macro and, and relatively well recognized. Uh, forces at play but then to get down to why is this person an astronaut how did they grow up what what is their personal measure of success what are their individual demons you know what what makes them happy and sad and cry and laugh and then why did they do all these things and to me that's the way i really wanted to write it so that every character was uh was not just believable what was but was true to my own experiences uh, throughout my my career and and it that fortunately led to lots of conflict and and lots of uh lots of plot opportunities as i was working my way through and and writing myself out of corners in, in putting the apollo murders together
1: Oh, absolutely. Well, you do a beautiful job telling. It's so thrilling to see, uh, rather to hear and listen and and read these stories. Again, many of which are real. Some are created, but it's just so thrilling. It draws you in. I I hope this becomes a movie or something like that. Um, All right, folks, we are talking with Chris Hadfield, a tremendous, tremendous storyteller as well as tremendous uh, author and, of course, an astronaut as well. We're going to start opening it up to q and I'm going to start bringing some people up. While I'm doing that, I'm going to have one more question for Chris, and then we'll get going to the next person. Samantha, you'll be up next. Um, Chris, let's take it back into the real world for a second. Let's talk about Mars. Let's talk about the moon and, and the humanization aspect of it. What do you think is going to happen next? I, I know that you advise some pretty significant space programs, and, of course, you have close ties with, uh, with the government and, and NASA as well. But when we think about Mars, I feel like it's this large, empty planet. It's just sitting out there that is not utilized. And there's probably reasons for that. Or maybe we just don't know. And same thing with Mars. But in your opinion, what do you think the natural path is next? What's going to happen with uh, the world and people as we try to adventure and explore either more of the moon or more of Mars? Can you kind of walk us through that path?
2: Sure, it's going to be exactly the same as we had the unknown on Earth, and then we explored and got to know our planet better, and then started to settle in new locations. It's going to be just like that, you know, how we have over the last seventy thousand years, you know, keep walking over the next hill, and as the technology gets better, you know, maybe float across the next body of water, or fight the ice age, or get to Antarctica, or get to New Zealand, or whatever, and, and then start to settle in those places, and. Uh, Just in 1957 was Sputnik, 61 was the first human in space. So, you know, 61 is just 61 years ago. So it's much less than one lifetime that, that we've been flying in space. So we're still way in that early phase of imagining, not knowing, starting to explore, and then thinking about how is this going to become part of the common human experience. And we've already done that, orbiting the world. I mean, we've had people living continuously on the International Space Station for over 21 years now. We left Earth permanently uh, in the year 2000. So, so you know, that's new and, and interesting. We now live in space, and we have for decades. Um, but next, obviously, we, we we just barely got to the moon in 1969, 70, and 70, down to 72. And as some of our earliest explorers just with the best technology we could come up with, managed to get there and, and collect some rocks and, and you know rewrite the entire history of our understanding of the Earth and the Moon and the universe. But that's we've just we've just literally scratched the surface. But it's been you know fifty years, and and now our technology with what SpaceX is coming up with and all the things we've learned with the shuttle and the new vehicles, it gives us it's so much cheaper and so much safer to now go back. It's sort of like. The very first people to the South Pole, Amundsen and Scott, you know, some of whom died, but now there's thousands of people living in Antarctica, and people live at the South Pole year-round, and that's what's going to happen on the moon. We're going to transition from the earliest, very dangerous exploration phase to now where our technology allows us to use it as a permanent research station to try and understand it's bigger than Africa, the moon, and it's a completely untapped geology so there's huge potential there it's also of course a great place to try and study and understand the world itself and to on the other side of the moon to to study and understand the universe itself and with with the with the demonstrated drop of cost it, it's suddenly now much more financially viable than it used to be and you mentioned mars mars sure eventually but mars is further away mm. mars is further away than most people think <laughs> uh literally and, and it's way way harder uh, but we're doing what we can we've got rovers driving around there's this little um you know uh, incredible rover about the size of a small car that's drilling down into an old delta to try and find fossils because we we might find the answer to are, are there aliens or not uh any time now on the surface of Mars. So that's pretty cool. But eventually our technology will get good enough to send people. We're just not quite there yet. But for now, space station, very soon moon and making part of an earth moon economic system and then sort out and invent things and prove them and we'll get to mars pretty pretty exciting time in history
1: very exciting and that's why it's such a pleasure to hear it from someone like you uh so prominent and has such a tremendous understanding of of what the potential is you know just a small story for you and for the folks in the audience. It was I was interviewing uh, one of the best video game developers and storytellers in the end of October, right when your book was launching, and uh, right at the end of the conversation, so it probably would have been right around now, uh, the room just exploded with people, and I was just like, what's going on? But we closed the room, and then everyone afterwards said, Elon was in there, right? And just to have that opportunity for him to listen to the conversation was exciting for myself, but I would love, of course, uh, to have a conversation with him, and, and similarly, just uh, you know have some great conversations with him so that's just a tangent and what I'd love to do now folks is of course get to your questions so if you have more questions for Chris about the book about space uh, anything at all come on up raise your hand I've already added some people to the stage and uh, I'd love to start with Samantha you've been waiting so patiently thank you Samantha and what's on your mind today hey
4: everyone Samantha Postman here from Canada so I've been listening intently, and I must say that, Ad or uh, Chris, um, you're an excellent testimony as a multi achiever that's excelled in innovative thought leadership that I've like ever witnessed. So I have a couple two questions for you. I'd love to know what helped guide you or transitioned you from goal from one goal and achievement to the next one. So that's question one. And question two, I feel like someone like you might have like a last message that you would want to leave in the world. So if you got to choose what was like on your, the last message on your tombstone to scream to the world after you're gone, what would it be?
2: Okay, uh, thank you very much, Samantha. And those are nice complimentary things. That's kind of you. Thank you. Um, goals. I think it is very important to life to have... To have goals, not just goals, but, you know, what excites you? If your life goes perfectly, what do you want to be doing? What do you want to be part of? What thrills you? And set that um, in order to then help you decide what to do next. And don't make it the measure of yourself. Don't drag it around in some sort of bucket list where, you know, if I don't get to do this thing, I'm a loser, but allow it to help shape your life. Because every decision you take that moves you even incrementally in, in the direction of something that you value is gonna be improving your own life, yourself, your own self-image, your, you know, your own sense of accomplishment. And have multiple goals. You know, I, I set myself new goals all the time. Like, hey, I'm gonna write uh wouldn't it be cool if I could write a best selling novel? That's ridiculous and audacious, but how do you do it? And, and, you know, how do I change who I am? Uh, It doesn't happen by magic. It takes years and years of work to do those things. But those are the sweetest results. So for me, have goals in your life. Do yourself the favor. Next time, you know, as soon as we get through this pandemic, you get into a bookstore or a library, notice where your heart takes you. What parts of that room do you always go to? That might be where some of your goals ought to be. And then try and do things on a daily basis that, Either read about it or or learn something about it, or you know, gain a skill that that herds your your life in that direction. So to me, that's how I treat with goals. And then messages to the world—that's kind of a big onerous task. But um, I've been asked for decades to you know to talk to kids and, and to sign a picture for them. And when I watch the tennis stars where they just you know scribble some undecipherable version of their name on something, to me that's. it's it's kind of pointless, you know, it it, wouldn't it be nice if instead they use that exact same five second period and actually had an interaction with the person, you know, said something, learned something about each other. So I try whenever I, I sign a picture or a book for someone to actually think about what I'm writing on there and not, not just, you know, give them a little ink version of fame or something. And so what I often write on, uh, is that you create your own future. And it's so easy to absolve yourself of responsibility, to blame it on somebody else, to say, that's above my pay grade, to say, oh, I don't decide that, or, or to, to say, oh, no, well, that's because of the current government or, or the last government or the one before that or the next one or because of whatever. you know It's so easy to absolve yourself of responsibility for your own life. But this is the one you got. And, and there are no timeouts. You know, this isn't an interruption to your life. This is your life. May not be the one you wanted, may not be the one you were dreaming of. This is it. So give yourself some goals that that are, are you know, somehow fitting within the circumstances of the life's possibilities to you. And then recognize that you, to a very large degree, create your own future so that thing through the things that you choose to do next so so be deliberate in the stuff that you choose to do next because your life samantha is not what you set out to do your life is just the sum total of the little things that you chose to do next so so to so be deliberate
4: thank you so much for that i appreciate it. it just reminds me of how important it is to pursue excellence and not pursue perfection um, it's a direction absolutely and- yeah, you yeah, also reminded me of a doctor who once told me, you only have one set of tires, you get to decide how you use the tread. <laughs>
2: mm. That's true.
1: That was good. Thank you, Samantha. Thank
4: you,
1: Chris. And, uh, you know, Chris, I love the, going back to your TED Talk, the last sentence that you said in your tech, TED Talk, really really resonated with me so maybe that's something for folks to check out but something for you to use as well for uh, you know not to say final last words but just something like that it, it, it's a tremendous message so um, let's keep going along you know we have some great people on stage it's great to see these faces of course and everyone in the audience I've never had this many raised hands before so it's quite exciting and we're going to go to Bunsen next uh, it's such an amazing group and of course I'm a big dog lover I have a hundred pound dog right next to me and uh, what is it? you've been waiting so patiently thanks Much. What's on your mind? Hi, thanks for taking my question. Um, my real name is Jason, and I'm a I'm a chemistry teacher. Um, my class is actually here. They just want to say hello and then I'll ask my question. Hello.
2: I don't
1: know if you heard that. Hello, Kevin. All right. Hi, Chris. So the question is two, uh you mentioned movies and space. Is there a space movie that you can get behind the science of how it actually happens in space or how the astronauts act? And the second question was, did you have to smuggle your guitar up to the ISS like somebody smuggled a sandwich up in previous missions, or did you have to get permission? And just personally, um, just, you're an amazing science communicator. I showed so many of your videos to my class when you're on the ISS teaching about different things. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you very much. I appreciate that, Jason. And and yeah, you got good looking dogs and hello to your class movies. uh... (laughs) Yeah, Apollo 13 is the best, I think, because it's 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 uh, a dramatized documentary. You know, it's based on the real things that happened to the crew during Apollo 13. And Ron Howard, the director, worked really hard to make that as real as he possibly could and still tell the story in two hours. So it's very good. And I like The Martian. Andy Weir, you should read the book if you haven't already. It's, it's better than the movie, and the movie's great. But Andy worked so hard to get the facts right to make the science work and but also maybe more importantly to make the characters credible and uh, Mark Watney on the surface of Mars and the Martian that's just like anybody in the astronaut office that's what the type of people that we need and so he was very the way he acted towards things that was really good so I, I would recommend those two um and then uh the guitar that's on the space station the um early on someone brought a harmonica up You know, way back in the Gemini program, I think, because, you know, music goes with us everywhere we go. Try and spend a whole day without any music at all it's almost impossible, and even if there's none around you, there's going to be some playing in your head. Music is human, and so um, so it naturally comes with us on exploration vehicles, as it has on ships all the, all through history. So it's on board spaceships, and the the Russians, the Soviets, in fact, uh, had guitars on their space stations in the 70s and 80s, and they brought a guitar up Uh, that when they built the Mir space station and they transferred stuff from their Salyut space station to Mir, they actually brought the guitar over from Salyut over to Mir. And when I was on Mir, uh, I played that old guitar up there. It was made in St. Petersburg, kind of a crappy old acoustic guitar, but really nice to have far away from home. And NASA noticed that. And their um, psychological support team recognized just how important art is to people, in order to to keep their sanity, and so uh, and so they. Uh, put a guitar on the space station as part of our psychological support crew. I think uh, Space Shuttle Atlantis brought up in the summer of 2001. And so that guitar, it's a, it's actually a Canadian guitar, Larry Vay, made in the factory there that used to be in Vancouver. Uh, and I've toured that factory. But that Larry Vay, uh, it's, it's a small body parlor guitar, but it's a nice little six string acoustic. It's been up there since the summer of 2001. No, astronauts don't smuggle things into space. It's not not how it works. That's fun folklore, but um, but no, I mean I don't know a more professional group of people, and uh, and you know every ounce is critical as to how your spaceship behaves. So so we're pretty careful. But um, but I'm really glad that that guitar has been there, and it has been there every single orbit since the summer of 01. So you know 21 years worth of 16 orbits a day. Three hundred sixty-five days a year. I don't know how many tens of thousands of orbits that it's you know it's been around the world uh, more than Keith Richards for sure. It's got a lot of around the world tours. And thank you very much for the complimentary words, uh, Jason.
1: Yes, thank you, Jason, and, and hello to the class if they're still there as well. Thank you for that. Um, Kevin, I know you've been waiting patiently. Just while we're talking about a guitar, though, I do want to introduce Amanda Palmer. uh, And you have a band. You like to write songs. So maybe you have something related to that or maybe there's something else. Amanda, thank you for joining us. What's on your mind?
5: Hi there. Um, I have actually gotten to play music live with the wonderful Chris Hatfield. Yes, we have. Yes, we have. Good to hear your voice, Amanda. How's
2: New Zealand today?
5: Oh my God. It's gorgeous. Uh, I was just in the recording studio yesterday. I'm in awesome fun is coming up. Um, I, I've been seeing you everywhere and hearing all about your book and it just sounds wonderful. And, um, I was, I, I wrote to, uh, an email to Chris a couple weeks ago. I was listening to radio New Zealand and he was doing an interview on there. Um, you just made my, like, entire body and brain light up talking about how important art and music is. And, like, <laughs> since, you know, artists and musicians think about this all day and know how important it is to our psychological well-being, but to hear that, like, <laughs> a bunch of professional scientists are like, yes, art is very important. We need to put a guitar in the space station. is <laughs> just, like, so life-affirming. Um, I I wanted to ask you... Um, what you've been listening to lately just for pleasure. And you're probably really busy. You're promoting a new book. You're doing a gazillion interviews and stuff, but when you're just on a drive or you're listening to music, like what, what is, uh, what is turning you on right now? What is, what music is lighting you up? Um, yeah, Amanda, it's nice to hear your voice and uh, I
2: look forward to us next, next time we get to play together. Um, yeah, I haven't played. I mean, I I play with bands, and but I haven't been able to play live with a band together much um, for, you know, since the start of the pandemic, like so many musicians. It's been a really bizarre period. So I've been using it to try and maybe learn some uh, some other songs. And the members of my band, we send each other something and then and then we sit down and, and try and uh try and learn it. And I recently learned a song called Runaway to Mars which I really like and I'm going to perform it in public hopefully in the spring from a friend. And then Jason Isbell, he's a really interesting character. Went through a very serious addiction problem but a superb singer-songwriter and I've learned a couple of his tunes. Um, and then I, I've kind of relearned some of the stuff that I wrote years ago and, and trying to go back through that. I was with a friend yesterday, a musician named Danny Michelle, and he and I were playing. We, we did an expedition to the high Arctic on an old Soviet icebreaker and wrote a whole album of music. Uh, called the Klebnikov uh, while we were up there, and we were playing some of that music last night. And, and I love just how different and, and place-inspired some of that music is. And then the last thing I do, Amanda, is often when I'm driving, I will actually just use the search feature on the radio in the car, because it's off in a rental car somewhere, and just try and come across music I've never heard before. And I don't really care what it is. You know, I just, I just choose based on the frequency of the radio station. And, and I'll listen and go, no, that's not a song that, that appeals to me. And then once in a while, it's like, wow, that's that's great. And wow, that's really cool. Or the way they've done that. And to me, it's it's just more like discovery. And then the very last piece is, uh, the thing I've listed most to in the last week was Meatloaf, actually. Um, <laughs> I, his vocal range. Is his difference you know nobody sang like he did and yeah. uh and for him to die so young uh is it, just a shame and so and he was a big part of you know my musical formation and in the, in the 70s and so uh, uh and so i you know not just to honor him but also just to remind myself of how good he was i'm listening to meatloaf as well
5: oh thank you for answering that i it one of the reasons you are so awesome is that you are obviously constantly curious about everything. <laughs> and, like, that applies to, like, science, space, uh, time, uh, all the waves of the, of the universe, including the music waves. That just makes me so happy. May I recommend the album that has really, really captured me this last year is uh, by Phoebe Bridgers, and it's called Punisher. And there's this beautiful song where she talks about, like, the, the whole vibe of the album is kind of based in LA. And she looks up in the sky one night and wishes on a star, but there are no stars to be found. So she wishes on a passing Chinese satellite. It's like. It's, uh, she's a beautiful lyricist, and it's a really soft, easy uh album but with like very very poignant profound lyrics if you don't know her stuff i will phoebe bridges punisher i'll have a listen thank phoebe you yes. thank yeah.
1: you amanda
2: look, look, thank you look at i'll be looking up at the same one hope to see you soon well, and thank you, right.
1: Amanda. That's a great question. And thank you, Chris, for sharing. You know, I want to get to a special guest that I've contacted uh, just recently. Chris, you may know Harley. Harley, you may know Chris. And thank you, Harley, for joining us today. You are a tremendous leader. Uh, and we'd love to hear what's on your mind today.
3: Well, thank you for having me. Uh, as <laughs> This is kind of fun. I got a Twitter DM a couple of days ago saying you're going to be doing this, the spaces with Chris. And and. I, I just, I actually, this is not a flex or anything, but um, I just interviewed Venus Williams for the last hour and I jumped off and jumped right on here uh, to see if I can get some time. You know, one thing that I, I just wanted to uh, i wanted to mention, I know most of you obviously know Chris as, as, as obviously an astronaut and a great writer, but one of the things that, that Chris has done for so many of us, and, and I, I feel lucky to include myself in this group, is he's been an incredible mentor and, and role model for, for so many of us. And, and I, don't, I don't just mean on sort of the business side because he isn't entrepreneur. And a lot of the things that I've been able to incorporate into Shopify has come from late night discussions at a campfire with Chris, but also the way that he balances uh, family and friends and what we sort of jokingly call our morning yoga, which is actually going water skiing really, really early in the summer in Canada. Uh, I just wanted to come on and just show some gratitude for Chris, who's had a a profound impact on so many people's lives and, and certainly mine as well. Harley, I was watching. Uh, thanks. Those are really kind things to say,
2: and I have huge respect for for you personally and uh, the way you're conducting life, but also the the number of uh, of people that you're you're helping and influencing and and uh, and encouraging with Shopify and that whole idea of what does entrepreneurship really mean. What it is, it's it's the act of brave creation and and the tenacity to carry it through and. And and uh, and the technology is enabling like it never has before. So it's been really good. I was watching a video that you put out, I think, yesterday, just talking about some basic rules, you know, for how to conduct life and how to be successful. So I happened to be watching your uh, your your uh, your talk yesterday. So I didn't know you're going to be on today. And Harley, it's n- nice to hear your voice. And the next chance we get for some morning yoga, uh, let, let's do it.
3: I would love that. And uh, I'll, I'll turn it over back to, to everyone else to ask some questions, but I just wanted to just say hi to Chris and, and just say how grateful I am to have him in my, in my life. Ditto.
1: Thank you, Harley. Yes, I did reach out to him recently. I knew that you guys were connected and uh, I wanted to see if he'd join us as a special guest. So thank you, Harley, for coming. You know, Chris, I want to be very, very respectful of your time. I also want to make sure to be respectful of the folks that have joined us. Do you have time for one more question from Kevin or do you have to jet?
6: No, oh, fire away.
1: All right, Kevin, what's on your mind? Thanks for joining us.
6: Oh, thanks for having me. And, uh, yeah, it's going to be, I'll be really, really quick. Uh, Chris, it's a pleasure to speak to you. One of the quick questions I wanted to ask you, as a child, I've always been fascinated with space and space exploration. And when I was a young child, I was fascinated with the programme. You probably know it's it's an American programme, Space 1999 Science Fiction programme. I must have watched that back to front (laughs) and worn the tapes out. What I wanted to ask, because the elephants were living on Moonbase Alpha, I know it's uh, fictional, but how do you see it in the future? I know they're on about sending people to Mars do you think people will be living on the moon and working on the moon and would that be in our lifetime or do you see to the next 20 30 years how do you see this
2: sure imagine it was 1900 or, yeah 1900 right now Kevin instead of uh, 2022 and you and I were sitting in a pub somewhere and you said you know I've been reading in the papers that uh, the sailing ships have been getting close to this big icy continent um, at the at the south tip of the world, do you think we'll ever actually go there? And at the time, it was just sail primarily, and danger, and and the technology wasn't good, and no one had flown an airplane yet. And I think our conversation would have been like, "Well, you know, we've gone pretty much everywhere else on Earth. We got to New Zealand about 800 years ago, you know, and we got to North America about 18,000 years ago. So it seems like this is just a, a forward extrapolation." Uh, just is our technology good enough that we could do this? And amazingly enough, 1911, people got to the South Pole, and now all those people are living in Antarctica. And so now the two of us having this conversation of, well, we've already been to the moon briefly, but you know, are we actually going to settle there? Is our technology good enough that we can make it safe and cheap enough that it can become part of the human experience and, and the human you know, economic model? Does it make sense? And the answer to that on every previous question on the surface of the world has been, yes, we do it. And so it's going to take time. It's going to be harder than we think. We're going to run into obstacles we haven't considered yet. But we do have to recognize that the moon is an enormous uh, untapped geologic resource. And when voltaire was looking at north america early in the 1600s just you know when when they were looking at canada he described canada as a few acres of snow and rock i think because from his comfort of france and paris that's how it looked why would we ever go there you know what what would be the point we've already got our own problems here and we have you know serious financial and economic and s- social problems here in france why would we ever want to go to another whole continent. Um, And and so you always face that same question whenever you're on a new threshold. And it's it's the right one to ask. But I think the answer inevitably will be, as soon as our technology enables it in a safe and and affordable enough way, then it will become an extended part of the human experience. And I don't think it'll be very long before we just have an Earth-Moon economic system. And there will be people going there, you know, temporarily and then staying for longer periods and then starting to stay more permanently as we get better and better at it. There's, there's 400 billion liters of water in the shade, shady craters of the moon. There's unending, never interrupted solar power next to those craters of water. So if you've got power and water, you just kind of need the right habitat and you can live there like anywhere on earth. So it's not easy. And we haven't done it at length yet, but, but yeah, I think the answer is we will. Um, and I don't know if it's going to be, you know, a space agency that does it, or we may have got the safety level down and the cost down enough now that, uh, that it may be a private entity that goes to the moon first. And, you know, that's not inconceivable by any means that would be new and different, but, but not compared to human history, you know? So, so, uh, you know, thinking of Harley, it will always be the entrepreneurs, the people looking for something new and different, a new human opportunity. You know, that's who drives exploration and whether it's local or, or global or interplanetary. And so, so yeah, I think that's where we're headed. We've got to fit it into the rest of the world's problems. But um, just being even a, a reasonable student of human history, uh, it, it is inevitably going to
6: happen. Wow. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. I appreciate your time and thank you for bringing me up on the stage today.
1: Absolutely. Well, you know, Chris, this has been a tremendous conversation. Uh, It's been my mission the whole time to create a community uh, that people can then share their stories, that we can learn from them. And I think that live audio, social audio is such a powerful tool, of course, here on Twitter and Twitter Spaces as well. So thank you for joining my mission. And, uh, you know, I hope that you are on more of these conversations. I'd be curious to ask a question. If, If you're hosting a space here on Twitter Spaces, Who would be one to two people that you would absolutely love and dream to talk to? And of course, you could pick Harley, but we'll try to schedule that at a different time. Who would be those one to two people?
2: Uh, I'd really like to talk to uh, Barack Obama. Um, I don't know him, and he's just had such an amazing life experience uh, and you know whether you agree or disagree with his politics, he's had an amazing life experience and and just how that has shaped his views of the world i would I would really like to get to know him and and be able to ask him some questions and who else? Uh, you know it sounds horrible, but I sure would love to talk to Vladimir Putin because I think he's doing a horrific job of decision making uh, for for humanity um and he had the sort of the the capability the the permission the uh the opportunity to do such different things with with the position that he he'd got himself into mm-hmm. in russia and i don't understand I, I you know i lived in russia for years and so i have some inkling but um, and, and I don't think you should just talk to the people that agree with you. Um, and so I would really be fascinated to, but it'll never happen because that's not how he conducts life, mm-hmm. but I would be fascinated to know what's actually going on in his head and what is, what are his measures of success and what does he hope are his final words to the world and, and what is, what is, what is he trying to accomplish? So, yeah, those would be two very interesting people to talk to, uh, but, I've enjoyed talking to everybody today yeah. talk with you as well. Adam.
1: And thank you, Chris. And so thank you for everybody, you know, and, and Chris, I share that same goal. I think Obama would be an amazing guest. I might know a few people. So if I can ever pull that off and get them hit, get him here on, on uh, Twitter spaces, I will absolutely have you there. Uh, that would be an amazing conversation if we're able to pull that one off. And so, you know, I want to thank you, Chris. I want to thank everyone here in the audience. This has been an incredible conversation. We talked all things about, of course, the amazing experiences that you've been through, Chris, as an astronaut, as a writer, everything that you learned from, uh, you know, the great like Stephen King, of course, and your own heroes on Star Trek. We were just talking about the ins and outs of the Apollo murders, which I hope everyone goes to check out right now. Go get it on. Oh, I need, need
2: to interrupt you, Adam. I am making, uh, we're in final negotiation with a couple different production now. Is to bring the Apollo Murders to the screen as well. So, uh, so yeah, we're at that phase, and I'm I'm busily working on the next book in the series for the Apollo Murders. But yeah, I'm delighted that it's already in you know over a dozen languages. People are reading it around the world. So, so thank you, thank you for mentioning it. It's a big part of what's in my head right now, for sure.
1: I have chills, Chris. I was just going to ask you. I was leading up to what are you going to do next? Is there going to be a sequel? <laughs> a movie? You're writing a book. There could be a movie. This is thrilling to hear this Chris so again thank you so much for your time I absolutely love this conversation I hope folks you did in the audience as well go hit those emojis if you did uh, Chris thank you I hope you had a great time I,
2: I did indeed a pleasure to talk with everybody and I'm I'm waving my little emoji hand at everybody right now thanks for having me on and, and uh, enjoy your day no matter where you are in this tiny blue ball take care of it
1: thank you Chris thank you everyone have a great day Bye
0: this is the best podcast podcast B-E-S-T stands for Business, Entrepreneurship, Startups, and Technology. I'm your host, Adam Sokolich and each week we talk live on social media platforms like Twitter Spaces so that you can stay up to date with the latest news and stories, learn the greatest tools and tactics, and gain some of the best opportunities to connect with new people. Special guests include top founders, CEOs, and experts, plus the audience is always full of fascinating people, even Elon Musk recently tuned in. All of our conversations are educating, entertaining, and engaging with the mission to help you succeed. So follow us on all your favorite social media platforms, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and of course, tune in live to the best podcast. Let's talk soon.